This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Vader, our podcast, Spirit Matters. Uh, we are found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. John Andrews. Uh, he is originally from England, uh, and as a meditator and a, a scientist for many decades, John has enjoyed following and writing about the increasing acceptance of meditation by the scientific community and the general public. He currently gives courses on meditation at the Osho International Meditation Resort in Pune, India, one of the world's largest personal growth and meditation centers in the world. John, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our podcast today. Hi, not at all. And we should uh, point out to listeners that John is, in fact, in India, and we're conducting this interview by Skype. Um, John, for the sake of listeners um, who are not familiar with Osho's work, um, maybe, uh, or and you, um, can you give us a little background? What uh, You were a physician, and you ended up being Osho's personal physician and presumably a, a devotee. Uh, how did that all come about? Well, I first <clears throat> went to India on holiday. Someone said, you should go to this place. I was totally uninterested in anything that sounded uh, remotely connected with, you know, meditation wasn't something I ever even considered. And But I came and looked for a couple of days and then uh, was completely blown away by one particular experience it was uh, osha was having a it was his birthday and in those days you, just to step back a bit in terms of the overall long-term story in the seven, 60s osha was like krishnamurti and but spoke hindi which krishnamurti didn't in a sense was very much uh, meditation is about watching and it's not about uh, being disciples and it's not about what later became sannyas and he was very much against that and then in a very fascinating talk he describes how all the people who might be interested in his work were already trapped in different religions and that his strategy wasn't working and he very entertainingly describes how the moment he would explain to anyone that he was amoral, irreligious, and atheistic, they would run a mile and he was left talking to the Bidiwala, the guys who sell those little cigarettes on the streets. <laughs> so then he says, I had to change my strategy. And I had to use religious terminology against the religions because he was totally against the religions. He regarded them as a, an imprisonment in man, of man's mind. So basically from 1970, he then said, okay, he started giving, giving sannyas and speaking on all the different religious figures. And in the process, his strategy was in a sense very successful because people who had been Christians were very attracted to what they saw as a kind of a, uh, a, a new improved version of what they had already been mm -hmm. experiencing. Same for Hindus and Jainas and Buddhists, and et cetera, et cetera. And then in 19, when he started speaking again in the United States in 1984, he then said, look, I don't want to play that game anymore. 
I've been speaking through all these other people, and actually they probably didn't even say what I said they said, and if by chance they did, uh, I put my meaning on those words. So I don't want to play that game anymore. I want to speak to you directly, and now I have the people who can understand. Okay. So I arrived in Pune in the, in the middle of that process. What so, year would that have been? So well, I first went in 76, mm -hmm. mm. and... Again, it was an extraordinary experience because I'm just a you know, doctor from London and I arrive in this kind of fairly, you know, sort of weird Harry Krishna looking environment with all these guys sort of doing all this Hindi Bindi stuff, which was completely alien to my culture. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, you could, there was a queue of people you could kind of walk in front of Osho sitting in his chair. So I'm, I get in the queue and we kind of gradually shuffle forwards and all these Indian guys are sort of doing rugby tackles all over the place. <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> I had this sort of, you know, wonderful kind of mad scene. And then I kind of, just as I'm getting closer, there is, there's Osho sitting in a kind of white, long nighty, really, a kind of long white robe with long sleeves and one foot over the other and uh, I could just see he was totally delighted everyone was having a good time. I mean, this is after all, theoretically, in not conventional terms, this is his birthday party. You know, that's the way people looked at it in those days. And there he is sitting there, absolutely delighted everyone is having a good time, completely delighted himself, but absolutely in some very curious way which I couldn't really understand was not actually was in it but not of it mm -hmm. and that was like you know because you you spend your life looking at celebrities and famous people and people that everybody recognizes and they all wave and smile and the celebrity waves and smiles and you can see like in politics you could see this clear deal you know you wave at me I'll wave at you kind of political agreement but there was no connection at all i'd never seen anybody who, who was surrounded by people who clearly loved him and he was absolutely there present delighted and completely un in one very particular way unrelated to uh, whatever they were doing and that mm -hmm. just blew a hole in my head i just had never seen anyone be able to be so in, in something and part of something and yet a part of it at the same time. So I'm there to sort of, you know, doctor from, from Lewisham, you know, kind of now what do I do? I'm standing in, and the only thing I could possibly think of doing is just bowing down and kissing the foot that wasn't in the shoe that was on the other leg. And it was like, you know, that's not the average London doctor's response uh -huh. to guys you meet in India, you know. So right. it, but that gives you a sense of how completely um, unusual. And I've never, never experienced it again with anybody else, yeah. that kind of particular quality, mm -hmm. which just changed everything. So then I went back to Goa, collected my things, stayed as long as I could, went back to London, cleared up all my career story and, you know, all the usual stuff you have, houses and, you know, all that, cars and all the things you have to sell and sort out, and then just uh, 
bought one of those Volks, you know, the compulsory Volkswagen van of the time and drove back. Now, now John, uh, so <clears throat> you went back, and at what point uh, did you um, learn his medita- Osho's meditation or other techniques for spiritual Say development that, that he had? Ask that question again. Uh, at what point, uh, when, when you went back, at what point did you learn uh, the meditation that Osho, or meditations that he taught, and what effect did they have on you? Well, they, that was as you kind of joined, began to sort of participate in, in the campus at that time. The, the, uh, the first thing everybody did was do all the meditations. In fact, I went to the office and uh, said, so I would like to take sannyas. That meant kind of, you know, signing up to join the caravan. That was the kind of... Uh, and they looked at me and said, are oh, you done the meditations? I said, the what? <laughs> you know? uh-huh. So then I, I was shipped off to do all the meditations, which I did. And they were, in a way, very dramatic because the active meditations are so, so much more useful for contemporary people than all the sitting that everybody recommends people do. Because Osho's insight is that in a modern, those sitting meditations were devised for people thousands of years ago. Different situation, you know, neuroplastically a really different creature. Today we live in very sophisticated, intensely entwined, emotionally uh, occupied uh, uh, environments in cities full of millions of people, very different situation. So if you try and sit, all you do is you become aware of all that madness in the middle, and it can disturb people. So his whole insight was move the body madly, and then you become aware of the silent center. So I did from six in the morning till night, endless active meditations for days and days on end, and it, the whole experience just totally changed me. It was a, it was probably the it's difficult to say this changes you or that changes you. It's just a whole, almost a sort of, it's hard to explain. But you, I, tell you, I tell you one interesting thing that actually may explain the effect. And when I went back first, and I had done some of the meditation when I was there the first time, I had to go back to my practice and I... Had, we had this sort of very unusual medical practice and it was very much a kind of involved the patients and it was a very kind of people's practice and there was this very tense meeting where I really didn't want to work any longer with one of our colleagues because we had agreed that we weren't not going to have any Latin in the in the uh, clinic and people just you know if it's flu it's flu calling it a viral upper respiratory tract infection didn't add anything so let's just talk English and be natural and ordinary and help patients discover what they need for themselves. That was the philosophy behind it. But this particular colleague was really stuck in the old medical model, and that was hopeless for us. So we had this public meeting. So they said, well, what is it you don't like about this person? You know, it was a kind of fairly intense meeting. And in the old days, I would have given reasons and explanations and all that kind of cerebral blah, blah, 
And all I did is I just held out two hands and they were shaking. And that was my argument. Mm. So in <laughs> some, <laughs> which was something I would never have done before, before I actually mm. started to kind of change the whole way of looking at things as being something to do with, it wasn't just a kind of cerebral exercise. It was about the body. It was about feeling. It was about sensitivity, about receptivity, about listening, about noticing yourself. And all those things, all of which were strongly supported by all the active meditations. Uh, John, why, as long as you brought up uh, active meditation, when Osho was in the U.S. Um, and had a lot of media attention and and for the sake of viewers who uh, listeners who don't know what we're talking about he was then known as uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh Um, the the moving meditation the active meditation which involved you know a lot of what outsiders would look at as very strange uh, often um, collective group uh, situations of people moving about um, in strange-looking ways. Um, there was a method to that, and and you alluded to it. Can you describe the technique a little bit more, uh, so people who may just have remembered seeing images of it on TV know a little bit more about the uh, rationale? Well, there are many different active meditations. Probably the most famous is called Osho Dynamic Meditation. And this is a very, very revolutionary technique because um, if you notice yourself that when you get into a state, you get angry or sad or happy or delighted or whatever, you probably notice that your breathing takes on a particular habitual relationship with that particular state for any particular individual. So what's so genius about this method is you spend the first 10 minutes breathing irregularly, irregularly. And you don't have to do it with anyone else. You can do it on your own. It's nothing. There's no kind of group phenomena about it. It's just what happens to you. You know, sometimes it can be more supportive if you're with other people, but it's got nothing to do with other people. And everyone naturally would do it differently. So you intensely fast, rapid breathing for 10 whole minutes, totally irregularly, irregularly, which is actually quite complicated. You know, it's quite, it's not a natural thing we would, we would do out of our normal habit of breathing regularly. So one of the keys to the whole meditation is you need to be conscious, alert, and aware throughout, which of course is necessary if you're going to manage to breathe irregularly, irregularly for 10 whole minutes and not just fall back into a coma and breathe like a steam engine in regular, usual mode. But the effect of that is to so disorientate the part, the 10% of the conscious mind, which interestingly is the part which keeps the unconscious unconscious. So people think, no, the unconscious gets a kind of bad rap because people think it's kind of trying to give you a hard day. But actually, you know, it takes care of your breathing, your immunity, your digestion, your heart rate. You know, it's maybe the best friend you ever had. But it gets a bad rap because it's also in the left luggage business because every time you hit something, you just 
cannot manage, what do you do with it? You stick it in the unconscious, whether it's something you're guilty about or feel shameful about or you want to forget about or ignore, whatever it is. So now we all walk around with a whole pile of stuff in the unconscious, which we have no idea what's there by definition because it's unconscious, but you kind of, something's always going on. I mean, the best example, let's say the road rage examples on the LA freeway, right? So someone's in a traffic jam. So something inside their brain thinks it's a good idea to get out of their car, go to the car in front of the millions in front and shoot the guy driving that car. I mean, just, it has some rationale inside that guy. I mean, it, something is triggered inside him. He hasn't a clue what it is. And one thing's for sure, it's got nothing to do with the poor driver in front. So we have no idea. You know, you're suddenly in a situation and you find yourself really upset about something. Or Why? Because it gets triggered by something in the unconscious. So the whole point of this meditation is you do that breathing for 10 minutes and that character, if you like, the conscious mind loses its ability to stop all that's repressed in the unconscious coming to the surface. So in the second stage, whatever's there can just come to the surface. And the whole key is to allow whatever repressed emotions are there mm -hmm. to come, to be freely <laughs> expressed. And it's not just about expressing emotions, it's about learning to watch them. Right. So that, and the watching is the key to the whole game of meditation. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you, John, in, in regard to that. So you have you do these active meditations from Osho, and um, they have their immediate effect. I would think yeah. you come out, you feel a certain way in, in a particular day. But by yeah. regularly practicing these active meditations over days and weeks and months and years, as you have decades, what are the uh, cumulative effects? What direction you're growing in? What changes in your consciousness, your psyche, your physiology? as a result of years of practice. Oh, okay, let's just be clear. Osho's not saying do these, do Osho dynamic meditation for a month maybe would be quite enough. Who knows, everyone mm -hmm. is different. But the reason for doing them is so that you start to be able to watch. So then his, perhaps the greatest revolution in terms of his meditation is learning to, is you, he, his speaking. So, for example, people hear him speaking and you would normally think this is a kind of, you know, just a, a TED talk or, a, you know, erudite professor talking. And then he explains, I don't want to eat. I would be happy not to talk. I would like to be able to sit here in silence with you. But you guys are hopeless. You can't sit in silence. That's why I'm speaking. So he's really, you know, just like, say, with Vipassana. You're used, because the, bo the body's in real time, yeah? Right. The, the mind could be anywhere, but at any sensory phenomena, if you're experiencing a sensory phenomena, you have to be here too, otherwise you wouldn't notice it. So, brilliant idea from Buddha, watch the breathing. You can't not breathe anyway, and there are little gaps between the in-breath and the out-breath. So, watching the breathing, if you notice, chances are you're here. If you missed it, chances are you're somewhere else. So what Osho's done is take exactly the same methodology with lots of advantages now. It's sort of major upgrade on Vipassana uh, where you're using sound, which is another sensory phenomena, which is also in real time, 
which is also happening now. So if you notice, you're present, and if you don't notice, you're absent, which is not complicated. It's a very old idea called the art of listening. So let's say everyone's had the experience. You're talking to somebody, and while you're talking to them, they don't stop speaking themselves. And you, you, go, you, know, you want to say to them, listen, if you don't shut up, how can you hear what I'm saying? And then there's the other situation, you're talking to someone, and while you're speaking, you can hear their answer bubbling up to the surface. And as soon as you stop speaking, they just throw their answer all over you. You also know they didn't hear a word. Now, turn that around, and let's say, okay, so what I realize is unless the person is quiet, they can't hear what I'm saying. Common sense. Now, let's say you said, actually, my project, my interest is to learn how to be silent, how to be quiet. Aha. So if I could learn how to listen, I would learn how to be silent. So, so that's the methodology between mm -hmm. behind the art of listening. So in terms, the active meditations are really like a long jump into the ability just to sit quietly and start to Discover for yourself what it means to become receptive and in this state, this particular situation to learn how to listen because you can't blink your ears even if you want to. So the most difficult thing about meditation is how do I do nothing? What does that mean even? So when you think of listening, you couldn't think of anything, anything more passive than that. So for me personally... The first experience during one of Osho's talks of actually seeing that there are things called thoughts that are going past is my first experience. Aha, so I'm not my mind. There are things over there that whatever, whatever this thing, okay, <laughs> whatever this uh, watching phenomena is, it's able to watch the mind. Ah. Interesting. So um, then the next discovery is that the more you are able to see the thoughts, the more they disappear. The more you're able to be conscious of your emotions, they disappear. So there were also fascinating uh, courses that were done here, which, which are still done. But in those days, there was a particular one, for example, on emotions. It's a simple exercise. So you, you're opposite somebody, same as dynamic meditation. You're totally one with an emotion. You want to kill the guy in front of you, whatever it is. And then you stop dead. And there you are left with this sort of bizarre homicidal look on your face. Close your eyes and just watch anger inside you. And it just disappears. And you think, what the hell is that? I'm not my anger. I'm not my thoughts. So that slowly, slowly, as time goes by, you actually start to become increasingly the watcher and not endlessly pulled this way and that way by thoughts and feelings of a particular situation. Uh, John, um, people uh, listening from the U.S. Um, will remember the few years that uh, Osho was in uh, Oregon and uh, all kinds of controversies erupted and um, um, it was widely, widely reported and 
well, a lot went down. Were you here with him at during those years at uh, Rajanishpuram in Oregon? Yes, well, you happened to be speaking to the one person who was most badly affected by that. That was his secretary, Sheila Silverman. Yes. And, uh, so uh, she made a pretty good attempt to uh, polish me off. And, uh, <laughs> you mean physically or uh, Physically. Physically. Oh, wow. I, I, really. No, I got a, a needle in my bum while I was, you know, do, I used to do this, this the, uh, read some pieces during uh, what, what was then satsang. That was before Osho stopped all the silent sitting when he said, you guys are hopeless. But we were, he was still experimenting with that. And so I would do some readings in between. And this lady was sitting behind me, and uh, I didn't know what she, I just sort of looked. And the next thing, I get this sharp needle in my bum, and I'm going, oh, my God, what the hell is that? Anyway, oh. that's another, another story. But uh, eventually I got to the hospital, and uh, I'm a tough old, old guy, so I actually well, survived. Well, you weren't so old then, I'm sure, but... Um uh, can you, maybe you can just sort of set the record straight since you were an insider at the time and there was, you know, tremendous amount of publicity that um, uh, people I've spoken to um, sort of um, felt that um, Osho was uh, victimized by uh, inference and that uh, Sheila, who I think ended up in jail, did she not, uh, was the... Yes, yeah, she got four and a half years for my attempted murder. Oh, is that true? For your yeah. attempted murder? Well, what, yeah. was, what was her motivation? Uh, why was she against you? Well, anybody, you see, by that time, when she started, she, she was all, okay, even going to Oregon was not Osho's idea. Mm. So he's in New York in this place, Kipps Castle in Mont, Mont, Montpellier, is it? Mm -hmm. upstate New York, so anywhere right. near New York um, and interestingly enough there was an airport at Woodstock <laughs> which was already built and they had roads and we could have just moved in right away, you know, it's kind of actually kind of not a bad place to go with a name like that, I mean why not and uh, anyway Osho said so that would be good and then Sheila said, no, no, she had some other idea. And you have to understand, he is not interested in running things. And now this is very hard for people to understand because they, mm. one lot of people will say, well, he's the boss, he's in charge, he should make sure this, that, and the other. The difficulty of understanding, if someone's a mathematics professor, then you look at the, all the students and you judge how good a mathematics professor is depending on their mathematics, right? I mean, that's pretty natural. Mm -hmm. But supposing you're not teaching mathematics, your key teaching is freedom. Uh -huh. So now how do we judge? You're free to do what he says and you're free not to do what he says. That's not his business. Uh -huh. So this is already getting a little bit subtle. So he's in America at her invitation. So she says she wants to go to Oregon. Okay, this is your show. He just gives his suggestion. If you want to do something else, it's absolutely your responsibility. You do what you decide. He's in no way at all authoritarian. His whole 
approach to life is everybody's an individual and only they can decide what's best for them. They may make mistakes, but that's how we learn. So we get to Oregon and the first thing he says is, well, where are all the trees? We've come to a desert. So it was not a great decision right from the start. Here we are in the sort of Oregon high desert in a farm that no one had been able to do anything with for decades. You know, it was an unwanted piece of land, basically. So then to start with, it all starts to get built and moves. And it's an incredible experiment, by the way. If you look at the world today, you know, what would you say? Wouldn't it be good to have a, a really good working model, a pilot experiment of how people could live together there would be full employment because everyone is sharing what the work there is to be done, where there's a whole atmosphere of celebration and people aren't broken up into little boxes and little families and little... So um, it was an amazing experiment going on and then gradually Sheila started to kind of go off track. And the big mistake she made was for Osho, he his only interest is to take advantage of any situation that existence provides as an opportunity to help people to discover themselves. And he doesn't, you know, any situation he could use. So here we were in, in India before going to the States and everyone is kind of, uh, oh, you know, this is, what are we doing in India? You know, this is the, you know, the place, the land of the free, the land of the brave, freedom of religion, freedom of <laughs> assembly. You know, I mean, hey. So there was all that kind of, you know, sort of American dream energy. And as it happens, Osho was very sick and, and had to go somewhere to where he could have emergency surgery on his back if he needed it. So it all, one thing led to another. So we're now in, in the United States. And then... Sheila's idea was, she thought, because he had spoken very beautifully about the possibilities of a communal life replacing individual family life, which had been the model up in the world. And he said, in the future, people will want to live more communally, you know, like you have now gated communities and all those different kind of communities already happening. And this was a, 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 an experiment in exactly that direction. So perfectly good we can use this situation as a doorway for self-discovery. She thought that he just wanted a commune. Mm. And she thought she was going to be the one who was mm. going to present the commune on a plate, his vision, here you are, voila, I am the great disciple who's given, which was had nothing to do with anything. Huh. That was complete misunderstanding. We just happen to be in Oregon, we happen to be building a commune, we happen to be doing whatever we happen to be doing, and everything that you happen to be doing is an opportunity to learn more about yourself, to become more aware. That was his only interest. And if commune's perfectly good, other things could be perfectly good. And she just got obsessed with the success of that particular situation. Mm. And... At the same time, I mean, don't forget, this is a pretty provocative situation. So you have, here you have um, a, a non-American from India who wears a dress 
<laughs> and a funny hat and drives a fleet of foreign cars. Rolls Royces to not to <laughs> put, put a fine point, point on it. <laughs> <laughs> Around a city named after him uh, where everyone wore red, where there was no support for private family, for private property or the family, where everybody worked seven days a week, which was totally vegetarian, right in the middle of Oregon cowboy country. We should mention that this yeah. was not this was not Portland, Oregon. No, this no, was no, no. <laughs> Eastern no, Oregon, which is very like Wyoming. Yeah, right, Port, Port, right. I mean, that was the irony. Portland had taken all the beautiful uh, um, cultivated cultivatable land and built a city on it, and then all the people, you know, the sort of intellectuals from Portland then caused absolute havoc trying to get rid of us in the high desert, which you couldn't grow anything practically. And so there was this whole ecological people and you shouldn't build a city. And there was so much prejudice, as you can imagine, it happens everywhere or around yeah. the world. Well, but there was a lot of conflict with the with the towns, people nearby and so forth. Right. Well, that well, for example, that was a perfectly good example. We just wanted to be where we were. We didn't need to go anywhere. So then along come all these laws and regulations and attempts to stop us just creating a little city there. No, no, you can't do it there. You you're not allowed. You can't have an office here because it's farmland. Aha. So where can we have an office? Oh, you have to go to the nearest town. So we go to the nearest town. And of course, you know, all hell. I mean, you know, one thing led to another, but there was several different things going on. One, nobody there really wanted this weird group of people who wore red, and you know, whatever the hell they were on about. They weren't like local people, right? So there was the usual anti foreigner energy. Plus, Sheila began to lose it when confronted by all this antagonism, and there was a lot. And she began to kind of almost become like them, mm -hmm. and, and then kind of decided she had to use more and more bizarre tactics in order to survive, because her big passion was to present Osho with his commune, and of course, she must have realized, Jesus, why didn't I go to go to uh, Woodstock? It would have been much better than coming here. Mm. So she, now her whole ego and her investment, you know, personal investment in making a success of it and not wanting to fail. So she gets more and more bananas and behaves in a worse, ridiculous, you know, kind of just really antagonistic towards everybody. She's got a, she, she's um, bugging the whole the whole commune and a lot of and some of it ended up being criminal behavior from right. yeah. well, but i mean i mean what do you call it wiretapping that's that's a right. crime right so you know trying to kill me wiretapping you know she there were all kinds of allegations about trying to do things in the local county and i mean absolutely and then she went and they they went and spread bugs on the salad bars and they made everybody sick 
I mean, you know, just to stop them voting so, so they could, I mean, yeah. complete so, crazy. John, we, we have a, a few minutes left, and I, I want to wrap it up, and, but it seems like it all ended on a good note. And uh, I have not been there, but I hear that your, uh, your meditation center in Pune, India is spectacularly beautiful and, uh, and well-established there. So just the, it, in the few minutes that we have, how did you, that transition take place? Well, that, that after, after America, Osho then went on a kind of world tour and went to many different places and in a way demonstrated how there are not many places who are ready to really look at what the future requires in terms of a different way to live, a different approach to life, and came back to Pune, and then we rebuilt this incredibly beautiful campus here, where exactly the same meditations are available, and they are the most revolutionary meditations on the planet. I mean, this is, you know, if Buddha came back after 25 centuries, he would look at us a lot, and he wouldn't just say, oh, I've got nothing to add after 25 centuries, not someone as creative as Buddha. He would look at us and say, you guys are very different. You need a totally different approach. And that's essentially what Osho is offering, not just to us, but to everybody. And, and John, if somebody listening in, and I'm sure there will be people who want to know more about this or want to pursue it or uh, visit Poon or, or uh, learn uh, these uh, meditations, uh, where would they go for that information? Well, OSHA.com would be a, a very good place to start. It's got all the information about visiting here. You can do the, all the meditations. You can do them online. You don't have to go anywhere. These are very simple, simple methodologies. You need to know how to do them, and you have to take the trouble to find out for yourself. It's not that you need someone particularly to teach you, but you need to do a little homework and do it yourself. Do them absolutely anywhere. There's no... One of the things about Osho is, for him, the, the, the beauty of the process is that everybody, everyone's an individual, everyone's path is their own, and they have to walk the walk themselves. As he says, you know, meditation can't be taught. It can be caught, but not taught. Mm -hmm. so, and John, anyway. um, I'm told that the uh, resort in Pune is, is quite a lovely facility, and... Um, a lot uh, go, uh, is available there aside from Osho's meditation methods. Is that right? Yes. Yes, there's a multiversity with lots of different methodologies. Perhaps the most famous is the Mystic Rose, which is a really dramatically uh, effective uh, three-week process where people spend three hours a day laughing <laughs> and three hours a day crying and then three hours a day uh, just sitting, plus the evening meeting throughout and in the last week, or if they want at any other time, the other active meditations as well. So that's like, that's probably one of the most powerful experiences anyone could possibly have in terms of who am I, what the hell is this strange game called? me walking around. What, what is this all about? Right. Hey, John, any uh, final words you'd like to share with our, our listeners? Well, just that, as you can see, there are so many people now beginning to appreciate the value of meditation. 
unfortunately, most of it is based on a Western idea of what meditation is, and that it would make a lot of sense. There's probably nobody ever who really went into the details of at all levels than Osho. So start meditating wherever you are, uh, take a good look at the active meditations, and then I would recommend they can go to osho.com library, they can read everything he ever said, they can search for everything, any question they have, they will find a more profound, entertaining, amusing, unusual answer than probably they will ever find anywhere else. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the entertaining and amusing part. Yeah, humor he, is... He certainly was that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's important because I, uh, a, a lot of people, when they think of meditation, they think of something very solemn and very dreary, where it seems like Osho's message was one of happiness and joy. Absolutely. And one of the reasons for having so much dancing included in all the meditations, you know, life is a dance. Life is for living. It's uh, his, his real, his biggest contribution was to defy one lot of people are materialists and they're the sort of eat, drink and be merry because that's all there is group. And then there's another lot of people who are spiritualists who are sort of think it's all rather special and superior and spiritual is rather kind of, you know, definitely superior to all that nasty material stuff. And Osho regards that as a complete insanity that you divide life into two and you carve it up between the material and the spiritual. I mean, how do you possibly make such a determination? I mean, if you have a good poop in the morning, do you say that's spiritual or unspiritual? I mean, it's <laughs> ridiculous, right? So his whole idea was that it's both together. The only holy thing, if you want to use such a word, is if it's whole. So his big contribution was not to have Buddha over here and Zorba, the Greek, the materialist over here, but to put them together and create a new human being who was really Zorba, the Buddha, whose feet were firmly on the ground and whose hands could touch the stars. And then to rub it in, he then said, and if you have to choose between Zorba and Buddha, always choose Zorba, because at least Zorba might become Buddha. Buddha is never going to become Zorba. <laughs> well put. <laughs> Very good. On Very that good. note, we can wrap it up on that note. Thank you, John. Okay, Thank you. fun. This is Spirit Thank Matters. You so much, yeah? This is Spirit Matters at spiritmatterstalk.com. I'm Dennis Money, my co-host Phil Goldberg, and our guest today, Dr. John Andrews. Uh, thank you so much, John. Great. Thank you. That was fun. Nice Great. to talk to you. Great.